Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. of Hebrews. These music stands have got me claustrophobic. I feel like I'm trapped in here. So. <laughs> so uh, what if I told you that doubt was not a bad thing? What, what if, as your pastor, I encouraged you to struggle and work out your faith? I think somewhere along the way, many have gotten this idea that these things are bad that doubt or struggling or asking hard questions, they show a sign of unbelief or of small faith. And and today what I hope to to communicate is that you cannot have this deep, rich faith without struggling and wrestling with it. Those things are important. It's how you go deeper. Last week, we, we unpacked how the, the letter of Hebrews has this call for us to grow to maturity in our faith. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus as our high priest gives us our agency back. He gives us our voice back. The truth is you can't have agency if you can't ask or deal with hard questions. And you can't mature in your faith if you're not allowed to struggle with it. I have been blessed to have been raised in a home with believing parents who have, since I can remember, taught me the Bible and drug me to church, okay? I got saved at a young age and have since then hit multiple breaking points in my walk with Christ. There have been times where I have genuinely wrestled with my belief. Now, I was going to share some stories, but I'm not because we don't have time. But there there have been places in my life where I have, I, w- I don't want to say walked away from Christianity because I had a struggle with whether Jesus was real or not. And I, I was became convinced historically uh, through the evidence that we have, but also through my experience with the Holy Spirit that Jesus was real. And so early on, I had that, that central belief. 
But everything around my walk with Christ, everything around the way I, things I was taught, things that I believed, whether I was taught them or not, that I just kind of inferred, there's things where my, the rest of my faith has been a roller coaster. There have been ups and downs, times where I have abandoned things, picked things back up, changed the way I view things. It has been a process. I have held on to Jesus, the other things I have wrestled with. I would not be up here talking to you today if I had not had these moments where I myself and my faith were put through this fire, these fires. My hope for us today is that you will leave here with an assurance of your salvation and therefore not afraid to wrestle with the hard questions which lead you into mature faith. My hope is that you will leave here feasting on solid food instead of sipping on spoonsfuls of milk. Going back to last week, remember this is part two, okay? <laughs> so the, my goal is that there's a mature faith, that you're able to pursue that mature faith because you have such assurance in your salvation in Christ. Our text today is very complicated, all right, there are many different ways to look at it, understand it. People have debated it, written books, gone to school for years over some of the meanings of just one or two words in this text. And I am a nerd, so I love to read and study those things, but I doubt you want to hear lectures this morning. So I'm not going to go over all the different viewpoints. What I'm going to do instead is, with humility, teach you from my understanding of what this text teaches. Now, you may disagree with me or know someone who does disagree with me. And as long as we agree on Jesus, it's okay for you to be wrong on this subject. All right? I'm kidding. Okay. But, but the, the, as long as Jesus is the central figure, then we are okay. We're allowed to disagree on these, some of these things. With that said, I want to read today's text. We're going to be in chapter 6. I'm going to read it. Uh, Verse 1 through verse 12, it says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, and we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the power of the coming age, and who have then fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they, have, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and then produces vegetation is useful to those for whom it is cultivated. They receive a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and in the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and your love, and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we dive into it today and we unpack it, that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we can have a deeper understanding and a love for who you are. I pray that you would mold us and transform us and call us into a deeper relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we come to perhaps the most paralyzing of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is full of them. We looked in week two at how we don't want to drift away from our faith. But the whole book of Hebrews has these warning passages. Today is kind of like the most freezing of the passages, right? You read it and you're like, whoa, that's intense. Impossible to return. The, those who tasted and now uh, are, and repented, but now don't. What is going on here? So if I could, could summarize everything that we're going to kind of unpack today and what I think is the author is teaching, I would summarize it like this. You, we must move on to maturity in Christ or be in danger of spending eternity without him. We must move to maturity in Christ or be in danger of spending eternity without him? And this raises all kinds of questions, right? Does this mean that if I don't grow in my faith, I'll lose my salvation? Well, there's a high chance, but it's not a guarantee. Does this mean that I can be saved and not mature in my faith? I mean, it's possible, but not probable. Does this mean that I can lose my salvation? It depends what you mean by lose. I don't really like that language, and we'll get into it. So, so as you can see, this is complicated. Remember, the goal of these passages goes back to last week. We want to mature in faith. And so today, we're going to touch on some um, deeper topics. You might want to take notes, or you might want to go back and listen to it. You might have to fight to stay focused, because we're going to teach a little bit. All right, it's not going to be all, all that... Uh, not a bunch of stories. There's going to be some teaching, okay? But the point of this, the overarching goal is maturity in Christ. The author starts with this call to maturity, right? He, he talks about the elementary teaching, that we should move on from elementary teaching. Verses 1 through 2 say, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. And then it lists a, a bunch of teachings, a bunch of things that were elementary teachings for this time. And look, you could do a six-week course on this one, on these two verses, right? To go in and talk about each thing that, that the author considers elementary. You've got the foundation of repentance from dead works. You've got faith in God. You've got the teaching about the ritual washings, which is baptism and other Jewish hand washing and cleansing things. You've got laying on of hands, which is for healing, but also commissioning. The resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. These are end times things teachings and talking. You could go into all kinds of detail. I'm not doing that today. I'm going to focus on the first couple of things because the author of Hebrews has been belligerent about those two points up to this point. You've heard me say probably a hundred times so far in this series, you are not saved by your works. You are saved by believing in God alone. We can't keep going back to the elementary teaching we, of, we have to repent from dead works. We have to have faith and an allegiance to God. This can be a difficult concept to wrap our mind around. It's one of those things that I have found for those that believe and were raised in the church, they could answer the question right on the test, right? Yeah, it's by faith alone that I'm saved. But a lot of times that truth has not penetrated to the deepest parts of our hearts because we've been raised in a Western society that very much is the opposite of this, right? In our culture, if you want it, you have to earn it. If you mess it up, you have to fix it. It's on you to make up for where you went wrong. It's on you to work hard and earn it. 
I, I work at a bank part-time, right? And this is just uh, the truth. If you have a checking account and you overdraft that checking account by hundreds of dollars and then you don't come back and make that account right, therefore you don't pay off the debt, you don't put the money in the account, and it sits like that for a while, eventually the bank closes the account. You can, uh, this happens all the time, right? You, you get your tax return. You said, oh man, I need a bank account to put this into. So you go into the bank and you say, can I uh, reopen my old account or open my new account? You sit down with the banker, they start going through. They will not let you have a new account or reopen the old one until you pay off the old one, right? That You can't have the new thing until you fix the old thing. That's how our, That's an illustration for a bank, but that's how society has, has set itself up. You have to earn it if you want it, right? But that's how many families operate, right? You don't get love and affection from me until you learn to obey. You don't get praise and approval until you achieve that status, till you get those good grades, till you land that job, till you're successful. Once you get that, then I'll give you the love and affection I think you deserve. That so much of our life has been set up, set up around this subject of earning it. So when it comes to our faith, we take that knowledge, we take that experience, and we project it onto our Heavenly Father. And we think He's sitting up there saying, you know what, you have screwed up so bad, I'm not going to accept you until you clean your act up, until you get yourself together, until you work hard enough to make up for where you messed up. But that is not how the kingdom of heaven works. You cannot do enough good things to make up for the bad things and earn your forgiveness. God will not let you foot the bill. He will not let you pay the price. It's too great of a price. It doesn't matter how much you try. You can never cover it anyway. He doesn't want your good deeds. Your heavenly father just wants you. And the only way to salvation is by believing in him. Faith in the God of the Bible. This text is saying you must understand grace. You can't redefine it based on your works. It is through faith in Jesus alone that you can be saved. But there's a problem. You and I are completely corrupted, radically corrupted by sin. The, the term we use in theology world is original sin, all right? Now, this is, this is not saying that this is a result of the original sin. That's how, how this is put, right? We read in the creation story that we were designed to be in perfect unity with our Heavenly Father, with our Creator, but we chose to want to do things on our own, and because of that, sin entered the picture and completely corrupted every human that's ever been since then. Right? It's everybody is affected by that sin. And that sin that completely corrupts us makes it so that we are unable to choose to follow God. You do not have the power as a human being, as a finite human being, to choose God. Uh, King David knew this when he wrote Psalm 51. He said, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Paul echoes this in his letter to the Romans. And he says, therefore... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and all alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. 
You and I can never choose God on our own. I've used this illustration before and it falls a little bit short, but I think it gets the point across, all right? Let's say there's a lion and they've captured this lion and they wanna tame it and put it in the circus, all right? I'm not for this, this is an illustration, okay? So they've got this lion in the cage and every day they're feeding it these like huge carcasses of meat, right? Keeping it hungry or keeping it full, making sure it's fed. Then one day they stop feeding it. They stop giving it its meat. They let it go hungry for a couple of days. Then one day they open the cage, right? And in the room where they open this cage, (laughs) there is a giant carcass, a giant pile of meat, all right? There, raw, looking delicious to the lion, okay? And on the other side, there is a huge wedding cake. Now, if I'm in that cage and you let me out, I'm not going for the raw meat. I'm going for the cake, okay? But I'm not a lion. This lion, this lion, okay, from the outside looking in, that lion has the right to choose either one. He can go eat the cake or he can go eat the meat, right? He can eat the steak or the cake. I just thought about that. All right. (laughs) That lion, though, has the freedom to choose, will never choose the cake. That lion will always choose the meat. You and I in our sin will never choose God. We will always choose not God, okay? We will always choose maybe a lesser God, maybe an idol, probably ourself, maybe some kind of other hobby or activity or ideology, but never will we choose the God of the Bible on our own. So we have this pickle that we're in, right? Your faith, your salvation comes from believing in God, but on your own, you would never choose God. But thankfully, We serve a creator God who has the heart of a father and loves you so dearly. And he wants you not to be forced to follow him, not to be forced to love him, but he wants you to have the choice to choose him. We call this in uh, the Wesleyan tradition, provenient grace, okay? That, that's just grace that goes before. So before you're saved, before you have salvation, God and his ultimate authority and power and love and grace sends his spirit into our hearts to open our eyes to him, to open our hearts to him so that we can either choose him or not choose him. Our text today puts it like this in verse four. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. Enlightened, it starts with God. It doesn't start with you, it starts with God. Another passage, this is in the book of John, chapter one, verses four through five. It says, in him was life. This is talking about Jesus. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus is the light of men. And that light shines into the darkness, shines into the darkness, corruptedness of our souls. And yet uh, the darkness does not overcome it. So even though our, we are completely corrupted, even though we are ulti- uh, completely ultimately dark, Jesus is a light that comes into our lives before we have salvation and the darkness of our souls cannot overcome the light of Jesus. It is too great and too magnificent. And that light frees our will, right? So it gives us the ability to then choose the cake over the meat, okay? It it frees us so that we can in that moment have the ability through God's grace to either choose him or to not choose him. Before we are saved, God gives us grace, and that grace allows us to have believing loyalty to him. 
That's how salvation works. That's kind of the the foundation of it there. You as a finite human cannot choose God on your own, but your heavenly father gives you the ability to choose to follow him. If you have ever felt that tug, if you've ever been in that place where you felt like God was pulling you, pulling you to surrender everything to him, you did not yet know him, you did not yet serve him, you did not yet worship him, he was not your heavenly father, he was not your all in all, he wasn't your God, you didn't believe in him. But in that moment, maybe through conversations with friends, maybe through listening to a song on the radio, maybe through reading a book, whatever it is, if you've ever had that time, where God has begun pulling on your heart, asking you to surrender and believe in him. That is that grace. And if you follow Jesus today, you know that grace. And then comes the hard question. So if you receive that salvation, you choose to follow God and believe in Christ. Can you lose it? Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6a says this, For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. Based on my understanding of that text, it certainly appears that way. It certainly appears that there comes a point where you can know God and later fall away. Now, the language here that we see in this passage is language that is used throughout Scripture to describe real, genuine believers. You renew to repentance. This is, this, is the, this is talking about those who once repented but no longer do, right? Repent, believe in God, and be saved. That's the, that's the process. So these people once did that. They once repented, and now they're saying that it's impossible to renew them to that repentance. It talks about being enlightened. This is the language that we've just talked about, language throughout Scripture for those whose eyes have been opened, their will has been freed, and they chose to believe in God. It tasted of the heavenly gift. Here's the deal. Tasting is an experiential event. All right, You can't taste something if you haven't experienced it. I couldn't tell you that one of the nastiest things I've ever eaten in my life was a meatloaf that my grandma made when I was in high school if I had not had tried it, okay? I could have told you it was bad because my dog wouldn't even eat it. This is a true story, okay? But I, the reason I gave it to the dog was because I first took a bite and it was disgusting, okay? I don't know what happened. Obviously, maybe some, there was a, some ingredients got mixed up. I don't know. It was horrible, all right? But I couldn't tell you that if I hadn't genuinely tasted it. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. One of the biggest battles we face is at the dinner table, all right? Oh. It could be something literally last week that they ate and absolutely devoured. This happened yesterday. Avery loves spaghetti, all right? It has to be the thin spaghetti noodles. It can't be like any kind of other noodle, but she loves spaghetti noodles, right? And she loves it with the red sauce. She devours it. We went to eat yesterday. We got her a kid's spaghetti. I don't like it. 
the words that came out of her mouth. I don't like, you literally ate this last week. You do like it. Stop telling me you don't like it, all right? You haven't even so much as licked it. How do you know you don't like it, <laughs> right? But that, that, that's the battle, right? There's, she tries to tell me she doesn't like it when she hasn't tasted it. Tasting is an experiential process. So this person tasted, says they tasted of the heavenly gift, says that they tasted of God's good word and the powers of the coming age. You don't do that if you haven't experienced it. It goes on and on. All these things that, uh, shared in the Holy Spirit, God's good word, power. Uh, th- these are all things that are describes genuine believers in the text. So if that's the case, you have genuine followers of God who have then fallen away, and it says that they are impossible to be restored. Now, this has two, this is the complicated part, okay? This has two common misconceptions. The first one is that, okay, if I can lose my salvation, then I have sinned, if I sin too much, or if I sin too much, too often, then I will fall away, okay? I will lose my salvation. And the other one is that for those who believe and then lapse into unbelief, they cannot ever be saved again. Both of those have flaws when looking deeply into this text. The first one, can you sin too much or too often to lose your salvation? I really don't like the language of losing your salvation because it's not like a, oops, I bumped into lust. I dropped my uh, salvation. Where did it go? Has anybody seen my salvation? I can't, like it's not, you don't lose it because you've done too much. If you can't gain salvation through works, through good works, you can't lose salvation through bad works. Salvation is not merit-based. You can't behave good enough to earn it, and you can't behave bad enough to lose it. There's no such thing as sinning too much or too often to lose your salvation. That's not how it works. You cannot earn it, and you cannot lose it by works. I had a girl when I was in youth ministry, and this girl would come to youth about once every month or so. She'd come to church Sunday morning once every month or so, and she would get saved every time she was in church. Right? Every time she would show up, she would come to the altar. As the youth pastor and the youth group, we would have people go up. We would pray with her. I would talk with her after church. She had struggles. She had sinful habits that she was battling with. And she would come to church because she was afraid she was going to hell. So she would go to the altar and she would pray that God would save her. She'd be broken. She'd be a mess. She'd get up. She'd check that box off. She'd go back out, live her life, and she'd be great for a few weeks. And then she would fall again. And she would just be absolutely grieved, broken until she could get back into the church and get back to that altar and pray again to get her salvation back. Because she had this idea that every time she did this sin, that was a habitual sin that she found herself doing over and over again, that she had to get back to the altar or if she died on the way to church, she would go to hell. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. You cannot lose your salvation based on behavior. There is a call to maturity. We talked about that last week. But that maturity has nothing to do with your salvation. Salvation is given to those who believe. That's the only way that you can be saved. Salvation is given to those who believe. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? You are saved. It's that That's the gospel. That's it. You believe that he is the son of God, that he died for your sins. He is your savior. He rose from the dead. That is Jesus. That is faith. That is salvation. 
So then how is it possible to lose it? How is it possible to fall away? The way you fall away is by not believing. It's by, it's by putting your faith, your, your faith for salvation in something other than God. It's not a losing it. It's more like a forfeit, forfeiting it, right? You stop believing, you're no longer saved. Listen, God is too great. He is too perfect. He is bigger and mightier than we could ever fathom. He will not have non-believers in heaven. And that sounds harsh, but he won't. He, that, that's, that's what's going on here. So much of Hebrews is rooted in the Old Testament, right? So let's go to the Old Testament for this example. There are Israelites in the Old Testament, the elect people of God. They have been chosen to be by the means by which God saves the world. Masses of them apostatize, all right? This is a big Bible where masses of them abandon their faith. That's what that word means. Masses of them abandon their faith. They go after other gods, the, gods of, the, the god of Baal, Molech, Asherah, many other deities. They, they marry and mingle with pagans and adopt their practices and their beliefs. Sometimes it even includes things like sacrificing children. And these are God's people who abandon their God to go worship these other gods. You have a bunch of Israelites who did the whole chosen people thing, right? They, they, they said they believed in the God of Israel. They got circumcised. They did the festivals. They observed the Torah. They didn't eat pork. They checked all of those boxes, but they walked away from the God of Israel, and we see them begin to worship and follow other gods. They are not believers, and they face the consequences. We see that the Holy Spirit left them in Ezekiel. The Holy Spirit left Zion. Go read the book of Ezekiel. There's some crazy stuff there, yourself, but we see that happen. We see the exile. God takes his people and he casts them out of his promised land because of the, they have become an unbelieving, stiff-necked people. The, the, the way that we follow Christ, the way that we have faith is by placing it in Jesus alone. You're not going to have ball worshipers in heaven. It doesn't matter what family or nation you're born into, they were born into, what practices they followed. They will not, there will only be one God worshipped in heaven, and that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was revealed in the person of Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see this in the greatest commandments of Scripture. The Old Testament, you shall have no other gods before me. The New Testament, the greatest of these is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. The way you lose your salvation is not by screwing up over and over again. It's by forsaking your belief. This forsaking faith, it's not passive. It's not something that just happened and you didn't realize it happened. Now, it can be subtle, but it's not passive. passive. Passive is when you don't play a role, right? It's, this is not a passive thing where, you just, it, where it just falls away and you don't realize it. It's a deliberate turning away. This is not having doubts. This is not struggling with the sin. This is a deliberate walking away from your faith. Now, it can be subtle. In fact, I think that's the goal of the accuser. The goal of the Satan in Scripture is that he's quietly trying to get you to trust in your own strength and abandon your faith in God. Rarely do we see this in our day as a blunt, someone saying, you know what, I'm done with Jesus. It happens. But most of the time, it's a gradual neglect of spiritual meat that over time leads to no longer trusting in Jesus, no longer trusting in his redeeming work on the cross. So let's say that happens. 
Should you decide to forsake your faith, is it then impossible to return? I could see where you read this scripture at surface level and you come to that understanding, right? That it's pretty clear. It says it's impossible for those to be returned, for who have fallen away to be renewed to repentance. But I want to look for a second at this word impossible. All right, I'm coming to the end. Stay with me. Everybody say ad. ad. Uno. Uno. Tos. Uh-huh. Adunatos. You just spoke a Greek word, okay? That, that's this word that means impossible in our passage. And if you go and you do this deep word study on this word impossible, you see that it can mean literally impossible, but it also can mean weak or helpless or powerless. In Romans 15.1, we see that now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses, this is a dunatos, of those who without strength and do not please ourselves. So there, you see in that use of the word, there's not this finality or impossibility that we see in our text today. Now, I want to be clear. There are times in Scripture where this word does mean literally impossible. In fact, in this passage, you go down to verse 18. It says that it is impossible, a dunotas, for God to lie. That's true. So when we look at this text and we look at this word, we've got to wrestle with what is really meant here because it could mean either one. There's another time in Scripture where this word is used. Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is a dunatas. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So there's this sense. He uses this hyperbole, right? A camel through the eye of the needle. It's not possible. Now, there was this teaching that went around for a long time that the eye of the needle was this gate on the side of the city. And if you were out past the time they closed the gate, you could try to squeeze your camel through there. That has uh, historically been disproven, okay? Uh, there There are cities and things that had that, but where Jesus was in this time, that was not the case. Jesus is using hyperbole, all right? This happens all the time. Like my girl, girls do something like they play with an outlet. If you play with that outlet, you're going to die. They're not really going to die. They might get shocked. Okay. This is using extreme to make a point. And Jesus is doing this because we know it's not impossible for rich people to get into heaven. Zacchaeus, we know is a follower of Jesus. We know that Zacchaeus gets saved and he was extremely wealthy. Jesus's point is this, to people it might look impossible, but with God, anything is possible. And yes, it's really hard. In fact, you could say it's not likely. Like if, if you're the gambling type and you want to place a bet, you would place a bet on the fact that rich people would not get into heaven. Or you would place a bet on the fact that if someone is once saved and then they're no longer saved, you would be betting on them. The odds are against them getting saved again. Does that make sense? I think I said that right. So there's this sense of it's not really impossible, but it's not very likely. And the author wants to get that, that point across. Someone who surrenders their life to Christ and, are fully, and fully believes that Jesus is Lord and then later describes, decides to no longer believe in Christ, they've already known the reality of Jesus. They've already known the joy that it means to walk with him. They've already known the victory in Christ. 
and now they've rejected it. So it's not like you can convince them of something new. They have to re-believe in the thing they have already rejected. And this is not likely to happen. So it could mean literally impossible. But I believe it's more consistent with the whole canon of Scripture to say that it's most likely hyperbolic. So that if you have fallen away from your faith, It's not impossible for you to surrender your life and continue to follow Jesus again. But it's not likely. And that's, take a deep breath, that's where we're at today. (laughs) We've covered it all, and I know that's a lot of information. Let me sum it up like this. Salvation is by faith alone. And that faith is only possible because God came to us and in his grace and love gives us agency to choose him or to reject him. And when we choose to believe in him for our salvation, that salvation is ours until we choose to no longer believe in him. You don't have to question your salvation. If you believe Jesus is Lord, you can wrestle and you can struggle with all elements of your faith. You can wrestle with the sin and temptation. You can feel like your faith is hanging on by a thread. As long as that thread is belief in Jesus for salvation. And if that's the case, salvation is yours. We see it at the end of our text today. Now we desire that each of you would demonstrate the same diligence of the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promise. And how do they inherit the promise? Through faith and perseverance. Through faith and perseverance. You are eternally secure if you don't stop believing. So to quote Journey in the greatest song of all time, arguably, maybe, it's pretty good, and out of context, don't stop believing, okay? I'm not going to sing it for you, but I could. All right. Don't stop believing. That's the key. And if you can wrestle with all kinds of doubt and you can wrestle with all kinds of struggle, you can say, well, what does this verse mean? And how does that verse compare go with this verse? And, and if this is the teaching, then how, come, how can I live it out this way? And you can mature and go deeper into your faith going back to last week because you know that you are eternally secure in Christ. If you believe in him, you have salvation. It is yours. Hebrews is telling us if we're not maturing, if we're not growing in our faith, then we are in danger of forsaking our belief in Jesus and returning to our old way of life. It's this cry not to return to the old way of life. And I'm telling you, one of the best ways to mature in your faith is by wrestling with the hard things because you have assurance of your salvation. Don't stop believing. Put your faith in Jesus. It's the greatest thing that you can do. And it will allow you to navigate all the complexity of this life because you can hold on to Jesus. He is forever. He is constant. And he is our savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.